You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is sponsored by Antioch University's Low Residency MFA program in creative writing. Want to learn how to write fiction, nonfiction, poetry, young adult, screenwriting, or playwriting in a two-year program that's mostly remote? Apply by visiting antioch.edu slash apply. Hey, everybody. This is Todd Goldberg. I'm the author of 15 books, about 12 good ones, and a brand new one, The Low Desert, Gangster Stories, out now from Counterpoint Press. Todd Goldberg is the New York Times bestselling author of over a dozen books, including The Low Desert, Gangsterland, a finalist for the Hammett Prize, Gangster Nation, The House of Secrets, which he co-authored with Brad Meltzer, and Living Dead Girl, a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. His nonfiction and criticism appear regularly in the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and Alta, and has been anthologized widely, including in Best American Essays. In addition, he is also the co-host of the wildly popular podcast Literary Disco, named a top literary podcast by The Washington Post. He is a professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside, where he founded and directs the low-residency MFA in creative writing and writing for the performing arts. Raymond Carver meets Elmore Leonard in The Low Desert, an extraordinary collection of contemporary crime writing set in the critically acclaimed Gangsterland universe, a series called Gloriously Original by the New York Times Book Review. With gimlet-eyed cool and razor-sharp wit, these spare, stylish stories from a master of modern crime fiction assemble a world of gangsters and conmen, of do-gooders breaking bad and those caught in the crossfire. The uncle of an FBI agent spends his life as sheriff in different cities, living too close to the violent acts of men. A cocktail waitress moves through several desert towns trying to escape the unexplainable loss of an adopted daughter. A drug dealer with a penchant for karaoke meets a talkative lawyer and a silent clown in a Palm Springs bar. Witty, brutal, and fast-paced, these stories expand upon the saga of Chicago hitman-turned-Vegas rabbi Sam Coopertine, first introduced in Gangsterland and continued in Gangster Nation, while revealing how the line between good and bad is often a mirage. Well, this book came about sort of as a happy accident. I'd written three very long novels in a row. My book, Gangster Land, which came out in 2014, and then a book I wrote with uh, the writer Brad Meltzer, The House of Secrets, which came out in 2017, and then my book, Gangster Nation, which came out in 2018. I wrote them back to back to back, and they were all over 450 pages long in my computer. And I was exhausted. I was just exhausted. And I had another book due, the concluding book in the Gangsterland trilogy, The idea of sitting down to write that book was giving me, as my Nana would say, surus, which is a mixture of anxiety and fear in Yiddish. The other side of it, too, was that we had sold the television rights to Gangsterland and Gangster Nation to a very large streaming service that will also deliver you your paper towels. And I sort of wanted to see where that was going to go before I decided how to conclude the trilogy. So all these things were happening at one time, and I was feeling restless about my creative life. I'd been writing the same character, the Rabbi David Cohen slash Sal Cooper team, this hitman rabbi, for at this point almost 10 years in in real time. 
and I wanted to try on some different clothes, really, you know, try on some different outfits and walk around town, see if people noticed me. And so I decided the short stories were a good idea. And so I brought the idea up to my editor, Dan Smetanka at Counterpoint Press about maybe doing some stories within the universe of the novels that I had written and also using some older stories of mine, three or four older stories of mine that I had inexplicably connected to this world, mostly out of my own amusement as I was writing them, but with no real plan to tie them in larger. He really liked that idea. And so we started formulating the plan for this book, taking ideas from the novels, creating new characters and exploring characters that maybe had only appeared on the page for you know a few pages. The other thing that I wanted to do was look at some characters that were dead. <laughs> um, characters that I knew the fans had really liked and that I had really enjoyed writing who didn't get to tell their full stories. So that was part of what I wanted to do too with the short story collection. The challenge though with the short story collection is either it reads as a cohesive whole or it's like eating Chex Mix where you're picking out the things that you like and leaving aside the thing that you don't like. I wanted to have a, a short story collection that felt like a novel when you were done with it. I wanted them to be connected short stories that were connected emotionally and then also tangibly, but it didn't need to be Olive Kittredge, you know, or it didn't need to be Winesburg, Ohio, but it could be connected in ways that when you saw these subtle tethers, you understood that this was all part of something larger. The stories sort of came to me in different ways and at different times. I knew that I was going to write the title story, The Low Desert, immediately. The Low Desert is about a character named Morris Drew, who I've actually written about a lot over the course of my career. The first time I wrote him was in a short story at UCLA Extension, in fact, in 1996, a short story that was never published because it was terrible, called Somewhere Apart. I can still remember the title. I can still see it in my old Word doc folder somewhere on my computer, my in my K-Pro or whatever it was I was writing on in 1996. And then I wrote another short story about him, and then I put him in my novel Living Dead Girl, which came out in 2002. But I knew I wanted to write about his history at the Salton Sea, and I wanted to write about organized crime at the Salton Sea. So if you're listening to this and you're not from California, you might not know what the Salton Sea is. You might have a vague notion of it. It's this vast inland sea that sits in a prehistoric salt pan in the Imperial Valley and stretches about 40 miles. The first 2,000 years of its existence, it was called Lake Cahuilla, and it stretched all the way from about Palm Springs to the Gulf of Mexico. It dried up in about 1600. From that point on, people tried to rewild that area over and over and over again. Finally, in 1905, the Columbia River jumped its banks, but not really. It was sort of diverted into the Salton Sea to see what would happen. And it took them two years to stop the diversion of the river. And it created this giant inland sea of salt water with no fresh water to feed it, which is an ecological disaster. But it didn't stop people from having this folly of building an, an inland Riviera inside the California desert. And so for the next hundred years, people have tried to turn it into a resort or turn it into a nature preserve, all sorts of stuff. They've dug for oil there. They've dug for geothermal there. In the 1960s specifically, it was successful for a few years. And organized crime came in and started to build gaming and bars and restaurants and all of that. And I wanted to write about that era. I wanted to write a crime story that was adjacent to reality, which is something I've done sort of over and over again in my career is write something that's not true, but exists near truth. 
So I wanted to write about this character, Morris Drew, at the Salton Sea in, in the early 1960s. And so that was the first story that I wrote for the collection. The problem was, is as I was writing it, I got about midway through and I was like, you know, I think this is actually a television pilot. I think I could sell this as a TV pilot. I stopped writing on page 16, called my agent, and I was like, hey, let me tell you about the story that I'm writing. And she was like, tell nobody. No one should hear of this story. Don't even put it in your book. And I was like, well, it's going in the book, and it's got too good of a title to not be the title story. So we're going to have to figure out what to do with this anyway. Some of the other stories that came along, magazines or anthologies asked me to write something, and so I would write something and make sure that it could tie in thematically with the book itself. The emerging writer that might be listening to it, that's sort of a, a nice way to backdoor pay yourself for a short story collection is have someone else pay you for the stories first and then put them in the book. But I knew finally that I wanted to write a collection of short stories that was about what happens when a pebble gets thrown into water. And in this case, the pebble that gets thrown into the water happens in 1973. There's a short story in the book called The Spare which concerns a character named Billy Cooperteen, who is related to the main character in my Gangsterland books. You happen to know if you've read these books that this man dies. In the short story, The Spare, I show you how he dies. And what I reveal is his death is a pebble that gets dropped in the water in 1973. And the concentric circles that come out from it touch lives 40 years later at a casino in Palm Springs. And so I wanted to write about the aftermath of conflict and trauma as much as I wanted to write about the conflict and trauma itself. The truth is I hadn't written a short story in about 12 years. I didn't know if I could still write a short story. It was one of those things where when I pitched this idea, I was like, oh, this will be great. And I sat down and I was like, oh, I haven't done this in a really, really long time. Because what happened is, you know, a bit of a champagne problem. I've had books under contract every year since 2007, which is great. It's great. It, it, it's the dream, right? And when I'm not writing a book, the time I would normally spend writing a short story, I tend to write essays now instead of short stories. So when I sat down to write again, I was like, do I know how to write 6,000 words and make it compelling? And it was a real absolute clear fear that I did not. And I had started out as a short story writer. You know, I when I was taking classes, in fact, at UCLA Extension in the 1990s, that's what I was doing. I, I wrote like 30 short stories in classes there over the course of two or three years. So that was my graduate school before I went to graduate school, was taking classes there and writing short fiction. Turning off the novelist and making sure that I knew how to write concisely in a small space was difficult. That being said, the advantage of writing a story, knowing it's going into a book and not into a magazine, is that if I want a short story to be 8,000 words, that short story is going to be 8,000 words. Yeah, that's it. You know, my name gets to go on the front. So that allowed me to have some freedom with the kinds of stories I was going to tell and the voices I was going to use. But it was, it was super daunting. <laughs> I was really scared. Yeah, writing a short story is more like writing a poem than it is writing a novel. You know, you're, you're dealing with a confined space conveying a powerful emotion in that confined space, getting in when the reader is ready, and getting out before they're tired of it. A novel is the complete opposite of that. You have all this space to stretch out and do everything that you want to do. If you want to write a book that's 800 pages long, if it's good enough, someone's going to publish it. A short story really demands an understanding of what the reader needs page by page, moment by moment. 
And to say like, oh, I don't think about the reader or the reader isn't my concern. That's the death of a short story. That's the real death of a short story. You have to be aware of what the reader is expecting at any given moment. There's a great new book out by George Saunders where he goes through seven Russian short stories and talks about how they work and why they work and why they persist now even to this day. I host a podcast called Literary Disco, and we talked to George Saunders about that book on the show. He was talking a lot about how each of those stories contains an early example of expectation. You have a general sense of what you're going to get from that story. And of course, then, you know, Chekhov or Tolstoy or whomever takes you on some left turns. You don't always get to exactly where you think you're going to go. And that really resonated with me thinking about that stuff, because that's also what happens in a short story that I'm writing, not not to compare myself to the Russians, although my family did escape Russia. Um, (laughs) But like I'm constantly thinking about how to upend expectation page by page by page. In a novel, you can upend expectation too, but it's not going to be such sudden jolting shocks. You might end up 300 pages in and the reader gone on a journey that they weren't expecting to go on in the way that they expected to take. A lot of this book I wrote during the middle of a vast global pandemic. So I wrote it sitting here at my desk, looking out the window at my neighbors and thinking, am I ever going to leave this house? It's a really weird time to write a book. It's a really weird time to write about violent conflict between people when you're not seeing anybody. One of the things that I love about writing a book is those moments when I get stuck, because of course I get stuck. I don't get writer's block per se, because I don't concede that it exists, as Richard Ford once said. But the best thing is like, if it's not working for me that day, for whatever reason, I'll get up and I'll go to Starbucks or I'll go to Target or wherever, and I'll just sit and eavesdrop on people. I love eavesdropping on people. I love listening to some couple fight at Del Taco. Like, there's nothing better than a public argument at Del Taco. Like, of all the places you could choose to have this conversation, you're doing it at Del Taco. So that was lost to me. So the only conversations I was having were on Zoom with my friends and my siblings. And it was all just a lot of people going, oh my God, can you believe this? This is bananas. We're in contagion. How did we end up in contagion? I really had to figure out ways to focus my attention. And what I found while working on this book during this time is that while the rest of the world felt like it was spinning out of control around me, and I'm not just talking about the pandemic, I'm talking about the American political situation that was happening at the same time. The only time I really felt in control of my emotions and of the world, and of myself, to be perfectly honest with you, was when I was sitting here at this desk, making up other people's lives. To be the calm port in a swirling sea of chaos in your life, and have that be your creative life, was wonderful. And so I'm that person that you hate, who was super productive during the pandemic. But I did it for my own mental health, to be entirely honest. Like, if I didn't have that outlet, I would have just melted into a pool of, of, you know, watching Rachel Maddow at three o'clock in the morning. It used to be when I was younger that I wrote late at night from like 10 o'clock until 3 a.m., but I'm old now and I mostly just want to watch forensic shows in that time period. Like, I just want to sit in bed and and be like, why don't these people get a divorce? Why is he going to shoot her? It's a terrible idea. So now I tend to write in daytime hours. So, you know, I'll sit down at my desk at 10.30 or 11 after breakfast and reading the paper. I'll answer some emails for a while, and then I'll typically write for four hours or so. I'll take a break at dinner time, and then 
I'll watch to see if American democracy is still a thing from about six until eight. <laughs> and then I will typically write again. And this isn't every day, by the way. This is when I'm really, you know, in the in the last sprints of a book. I'll write again from eight until 10. But I take lots of time off. I take days off. I take weeks off because I feel like if our job is to convey the complexity of human existence, then I need to have a human existence. And so that means in a normal situation, you know, going out and seeing friends and eating and things like that and shopping, teaching, obviously, as well, since I am a professor. During this time, those days off, I often spent a lot of it reading. I spent a lot of it taking long walks. You know, unfortunately, I live in the desert and I live in a giant gated community around a man-made lake carved into the desert. So an equal ecological disaster to the Salton Sea, but on a, on a minor league level. Um, and so I was able to really spend this pandemic getting some exercise, too. So I value that button chair time and I do have a, a rhythm to it. But I also recognize that I need to sometimes alter that rhythm in order to be productive. There's 12 stories in the book, three of them I'd written previously. I started the process of working on this book in late 2019, I believe it was. I think it was probably September of 2019, and I finished it April of 2020. I did the last rewrites of it in, I think, July of 2020, and then the book came out summer of 2019. So it was about a year all in of writing and rewriting. And there's stories that I wrote for the book that aren't in the book. We'll add that in the in the DVD. The stories that aren't in the book aren't bad stories. They just didn't end up doing what I wanted them to do emotionally to get us to the place at the end of this book where you felt like you'd been on the journey I wanted you to go in. They were either too funny or too violent or too weird or a little surreal. It's not a book where I could have a surreal story. I eat a lot of fudge and then I cry. That's my revision process, eating fudge and sobbing. <laughs> there's two stages to the revision process for me. There's the revision that I'm doing on my own, and then there's the revision that's happening with my editor. I'm the kind of revisor who sort of has a, a living revision. I don't, I don't really revise at the end. I'm constantly going back and, and revising as I write. For instance, I'll write, say, five pages on Monday. On Tuesday morning, I'll come to the pages and I'll revise those five pages and then I'll write five new pages. And so I'm always doing this sort of one step forward, two steps back as I write, particularly in a short story. It's a little different in a novel. I, I will still go back and revise in a novel what I wrote the day before, but with a novel day from page one, and that's not that's not healthy for yourself. And it's not healthy for the book, for sure. Although I often think about the story that I heard Jeffrey Eugenides tell about writing Middlesex. You know, Middlesex took him like 15 years to write, and it was like 3,000 pages long or something. And he got to the end, and he recognized that he was a much better writer at the end of the book than at the beginning, because it had been 15 years. And he had to go rewrite the whole damn thing over again. I'm like, that is not something I'm interested in doing. I'm also not interested in spending 15 years writing a book. However, back to the, the actual thing that I'm doing. I'll revise uh, as I go, and by the time I get to the end of a story, typically I know whether or not it's any good. And if it's any good at that point, and it's going to be in a book like this, I'll set it aside and let it just wait. And then when the book is, itself is done, I send it all complete to my editor. My editor and I have a, a very close relationship. Because of this close relationship, there's a lot of mutual trust that's involved. And you have to have that with someone who's going to dive into your work on a micro level. If you don't trust their instincts, if you don't trust their point of view, their edits are always going to feel personal. 
and they're never going to feel creative. So I always know when Dan, my editor, is is working on my stuff that he's always about making the book better. It's not about making it sound like him. He doesn't write. It's about making the book sound like the way it, it can sound, like the best version of itself. And he's a brutal editor. You know, he he will chop up stuff like he's on Master Chef. You know, he's just he's edited three books of mine at this point, two novels and a short story collection. And you know, he's he's brutal with it. And then he'll also have amazing plot suggestions. And then he'll say things like, okay, we're gonna take out this story and you're gonna write a new story, and the new story is going to have this emotion in it. And so sometimes the rewriting is that. Sometimes the rewriting is this story doesn't work for this book. It's a good story, but it doesn't work. Write a story that does something different. But the key thing in this book and where you can really see it for interested readers about the way an editor plays an active role in something, there's a short story in the book called Goon Number 4. And I wrote that short story for an anthology called The Darkling Halls of Ivy that was edited by the crime writer Lawrence Block, an absolute hero of mine. Lawrence had asked me for a short story for this anthology. It had to be a crime story that took place at a college or school of some kind. And so I wrote this satirical story about a goon, the guy who stands in the background in crime scenes and holds a suitcase and looks badass and, you know, burns the mounds of corpses or whatever. Because I've always wondered, like, what's that guy's life like? Like, that guy's got it. Like, does he have a health plan? Like, does he know what he's going to do if the cartel, everyone gets arrested? Like, what's his next job going to be? These are all these stupid questions I'm asking when I'm watching, you know, Narcos or whatever on HBO. And so I wrote the story about this guy, this goon, and his plan is he's going to go back to community college and he gets into a class on radio broadcasting. It's an absurd story. It's, you know, it's super broad satire. And it's also mocking this thing that I do, which is I write about badasses. And I write about badasses that are often funny. And I write about badasses that are hyper-violent. All these things that I do that have built the house that I'm sitting in now, I'm making fun of in this story and making fun of the genre itself. And so within the context of that anthology, where most of the stories are very much straight down the line sort of crime stories, it really works well to kind of take the piss out of these other stories, as the saying goes. Dan was not a fan of it. He just didn't like the story. And I was like, it's a really good story. I know it's a really good story. And he said, it, it's it's a good story and it's a really good story. You're right. I don't like it, but that's not, I can't, that's not to say I don't understand that it's good. It's just not what I'm into. He's like, but in order for it to work in this book, you have to change it. And you have to scale back the satire and you have to scale back different parts of the character because if you have this broad satire inside this book, you're going to undercut the true emotions of all the other characters in every single other story. And I had never thought of that. I'd never thought about how that story exists when surrounded by other stories that I've written versus other stories other people have written. And that was sort of a profound editorial moment. It allowed me to trust him and he trusted me that I knew how to rewrite it and make it work. Now, you know, in all the reviews, people mention that story because it's a weird story, but also because it's a really good story and he made it better. So Dan Spatank is a vicious editor, but it's because he has the keenest eye for talent that I've ever seen. You know, he collects some of the best authors in California together on, on his imprint at Counterpoint. I mean, he's, he's in charge of Counterpoint Press now, but he's done a great job of saying, essentially, California belongs to me. Echo can have New York. FSG can have New York. I get LA. I get all the best writers from LA. He's really created a culture at that press 
where like if you're a, a really good LA writer, literary fiction, crime fiction, whatever, nonfiction, if Dan wants you, he's going to make you into a better writer and you're going to sell a lot of books. There's two challenges to the copy editing part. The first is that I'm dyslexic. Although I'm cured of my dyslexia, theoretically, as a 50-year-old man, I still end up leaving words out or transposing words and not being able to see them. So there's that part, which I know is a challenge for copy editors. But the biggest thing is that I write in a kind of, in some of the stories, in a kind of gangster patois. And what that involves often is leaving off the subject inside of a verb. So instead of saying, do you want to go get something to eat? The sentence might just be, want to get something to eat. So I do that a lot with a particular character. Well, a copy editor is going to come in and the narrative voice is going to add the subjects over and over again. Like this isn't grammatically correct. And so for my first two books with uh, Counterpoint, where I'm writing in this gangster voice, the copy editors oftentimes would fix that. And I'd say, if they touch another one of my sentences, the copy editor is going to be chewing with their back teeth. Like, don't correct my voice. Correct my errors. Don't correct my voice. Like, the voice is intentional. And you maybe hear it when I talk like that. <laughs> when I say, you're going to be chewing from your back teeth. In this book, you know, I use a lot of different voices for it. But I still use that sort of tick. This sort of hard-boiled tick. And so I was very specific this time when I said to the production folks, it was like, I have just... Two of the smallest rules. No one change a single joke that I write and don't fix my voice. And then it will be fine. And this is the easiest copy editing experience of my life. There's nothing worse than someone thinking they have a better joke than you. There's nothing worse. And I had a copy editor. This was years ago. This was before I worked for CounterPoint. This is when I was writing Burn Notice. And there's a lot of jokes in the Burn Notice books. And this one time I just had a copy editor who... Uh, maybe he did stand up on the weekends, but he would like cross out my jokes and write different jokes. And I was like, am I in the twilight zone? What is happening to me? Who is this person? So that was a problem. And if I ever find that person, or if you're listening to this, I know you and I'm coming for you. <laughs> the copy editing process, all of that, it's a necessary part of this and it should be enjoyable, but you have to go through five passes on your pages before they finally get published and then immediately after they're published you get an email from someone it's usually a, a a person somewhere in the middle of the country with not a lot going on and they say on page 278 there's an, a typo on page 287 there's a typo on page 289 you use the wrong version of heard and you're like oh my god this is why a dyslexic should never be in charge of his own copy editing so after all the edits dan my editor typically we would have szechuan together <laughs> <laughs> That's typically what would happen. Dan and I are great eaters of Szechuan. Unfortunately, we were uh, apart, so we could not have Szechuan together, but we did have many texts about it. The next big thing, to be perfectly honest with you, was I told Dan and the marketing department at CounterPoint, I need a badass cover. I said, I want a cover that makes you think that you just walked into a crime scene. I want a cover that looks like a prestige TV show but also makes you a little scared. And I don't want any people on it. And they were like, okay. Because I gotta tell you, there's nothing I hate more as a crime writer than that cover where it's the shadow man from behind and he's standing there looking at the desert and he's got a gun held out to one side. No one stands like that, by the way, ever in the history of the world. No shadow man has stood with his gun 
at a 45 degree angle from his body like that. What are you doing? Why are you, why are you standing like that? I don't want that. I don't want a shadow man staring at a city. Now, if you're to look at all my book covers, there are plenty of shadow men that have been on my book covers staring off into the city. Or sometimes I have a shadow man who's morphing into a gun. You know, I get a lot of that. And I didn't want that. I wanted this to be different. So I was really specific. Like, I want a badass cover. And if we have a badass cover, I think this can be something special. I have to tell you, though, I was a little apprehensive about the book. It had been a long time since I'd written short stories, as I said. I had established myself as sort of a longer form crime novelist where people were expecting a 400 page crime book and I didn't know how people were going to feel about it. So I was was a little scared about the book itself. When the art came, the art was so good. We got a stack of great covers, actually. The artist did a tremendous job. And if I can remember his name, I'll send you guys a link and you can you can go look at the rejected covers because there was the rejected covers were so good he put them on his website also. But we settled on this cover for the low desert that is badass because the word desert is actually buried in the desert. And it just gives you the sense that, oh man, if you move the title, there's gonna be a hand sticking up out of the sand. And that's what I wanted. I wanted you to feel like you stumbled into that something weird. So that part happened. We had this great cover and then we had a meeting with the marketing department. And I should tell you that the advantage of this being my third book with this press, but really my fourth under contract, I have a, a third novel that I haven't written yet that was signed up before the short story, is that I, I know the marketing department, I know the publicity department extraordinarily well. We've always worked extremely well together. But I had a really specific demand, which is in the past, you know, Counterpoint is more of a literary press than it is a crime press, always has been historically. And so they had always sort of sold me as literary fiction with a gun. I didn't want that. I'm like, I'm a crime novelist. I'm a crime writer. I don't want to be interviewed in magazines that are about literary fiction. I don't want to appear in literary fiction roundups. I want you to sell this as a crime book. That's how we also determine, like, then we need to have something on the cover that says something other than the low desert. We need to have something that doesn't just say short stories on it. And that's how we determined that it's going to be called the low desert gangster stories. Because all of a sudden now you're like, gangster stories? What is that about? And gangster stories aren't going to be rounded up together with a bunch of short story collections about 25-year-olds thinking about their, their best friend who died in the drowning in the, that lake that one summer. Like, I'm not going to get reviewed with those books. That was a real big sort of revelation, for, I think, for all of us is, okay, we're going to market this as this thing. This is crime fiction. This is gangster stories. We're not going after that literary marketplace. We're going after that crime marketplace, that crime niche. And that's been extraordinarily successful for us subsequently. But that also sort of dovetails into the kind of blurbs that I went out and got or that the press got for me too, which is that in the past, again, you know, we'd always sort of had a mixture of literary people and crime people on my books. And I was like, no, I want only genre fiction. That's it. All I want is genre fiction on here. I went to my friends and I asked for some favors and I got them. You know, I, I asked Don Winslow, who I've known for 20 years and who is one of my favorite novelists. Hey, Don, can you do me a favor? Can I get a blurb from you? Absolutely. And then it was, you know, other close friends of mine, like, you know, Attica Locke or Ivy Pakoda or, or Brad Meltzer, um, who's like a brother to me, or, you know, Paul Tremblay, uh, Dan Sean or Lou Burney, all these folks that, that came through. And then I was like, I got to ask Lawrence Block. If I get Lawrence Block to blurb my book, that's like having Jesus blurb the Last Supper. And ooh, that's a good line. Someone remember that one. <laughs> and 
I asked Lawrence if he would blurb it, and he doesn't really blurb much of anything. And he was like, yeah, sure. That's when I sort of started to believe, like, oh, maybe maybe I'm onto something here. Maybe I've got something bigger than I thought I had. It's a really strange time to have a book out, just in general, because it's hard to share good news in the middle of so much suffering. I'm coming from the advantage of, however, having a book coming out towards the back end of this. I should say, as we're recording this, I just got my first vaccination shot yesterday. I'll be fully vaccinated in three weeks. That didn't even seem like a possibility when I was writing this book. I didn't believe the vaccine was ever going to come. I also wasn't entirely sure I wasn't going to be boxed up and put into a camp. But that's another story for a a previous presidency. So having a book come out during this time, it's weird, but I, I think people are beginning to have more hope. People feel like that other side is here. You know, we talked about that a lot in the graduate school that I'm in charge of at UCR, where my writers would be saying, like, why am I even doing this? Like, this is absurd. Why am I even spending my time on this work? And I'd tell them, look, there's another side. There's another side. It is coming. And when it comes, people are going to want to read your stories. You know, our job is to is to catalog this time. And it's your job to recognize that you'll get to it. And knock on wood, you know, no one died or no one had their parents die in my program or anything. So that was good. But, you know, my book came out in February. The remarkable thing for me is that it met with such immediate and widespread acclaim (laughs) that I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. I had some notion that that good things were coming because of my early reviews. So you get essentially three early reviews. Publishers Weekly Magazine, Kirkus Magazine, and Booklist review your book before it comes out. And that gives bookstores an idea of how many books to order. It gives libraries an idea if they want to buy the book, things of that nature. And also lets newspapers and, and magazines have a general idea if this is the, the kind of book that they want to cover as part of their entertainment coverage. And I received starred reviews in Publishers Weekly and in Kirkus. A great review in Booklist that I, maybe there was a typo and they forgot the star. We'll look into it. And then Publishers Weekly then named it one of the best books of the season, and then one of the best books of the week. This was all before the book came out. And then USA Today featured it as one of the best books for 2021, before 2021 had even hit. And so all of a sudden, sort of all of these existential concerns I had of how will anyone ever hear about this book? Will anyone ever even be able to buy it? You know, where do people shop? All these things started to be allayed for me because it began to pick up its own velocity. I began to realize that I don't need to be in every single bookstore in America standing there holding the book in my hand, making you buy it. The press is doing a job for me, which is great. But that being said, like I love to go out and do book events. I mean, I'm the one writer that's an extrovert. It's like me and Natasha Dayan are the two extroverted writers in America today. That's it. Just the two of us. And I just love being in a Barnes and Noble on a Tuesday night, shaking hands and hugging people and talking and then buying everyone ice cream afterwards. Like, I just, I love that. I like waking up at a courtyard inn in the middle of America on a Wednesday, a cheeseburger from room service drying in the bed beside me and a bunch of flyers with my face on it for an independent bookstore that also sounds like a craft beer. I love that. Like, that's, that's why I got in this game. So I miss that. I miss that a lot. I miss I miss seeing old friends. You know, one of the great joys of having a book out is you know, you're going to a bunch of different cities, and you're going to all these different bookstores, and you know these people. I mean, this is my 15th book. You know, I've been going to these places for a really long time, and it's part of the ritual that is gone is that that time in front of those people and seeing those fans. Like, you know, I always know in Chicago, 
you know, I'm going to see this fan. He comes to everything. He brings me a cake. It's also, I'm really missing the free food. To be perfectly clear, I'm missing the free food. All of that is hard. That lack of human touch is hard. The other night, I did an event here in L.A., and by that I mean here in my office in Palm Springs. The bookstore is in L.A., and the person interviewing me is in L.A., but I'm right here at Skylight Books. You know, you're sitting there, and you're watching the online event. You're watching all the people signing in, and it's all your friends and, you know, people you went to high school with. They're showing up, and you just see their names blipping through, and you're just like, oh, my God, I want to I wanna go and hug that person and talk to them and drink two-buck chuck and have a cupcake and you know, find out about their lives. And you, you miss that, you know, you miss that, you miss that human connection that I think is, is such an important part of being a writer versus being some other form of entertainer. You know, being a writer, I, I think we're the most accessible part of the entertainment world. You get to go up and talk to a writer, shake their hand and tell them that their book sucks or that you like it. And you don't get to do that to a musician or an actor all that often, unless you run into them at the Grove or something. You suck. <laughs> Everyone asks me what it's like to be in a family of writers because my brother, Lee, is also a crime writer. And my sisters both write. My mom was a writer. My dad was a journalist. My uncle was a writer. My cousins are writers. I mean, it's the family business. So everyone always asks me something about what it's like to be in a family of writers. So you want to know? Do you really want to know what it's like to be in a family of writers? <laughs> well, here's the thing. The benefit of being in a family that has crime writers in it, like my brother, is when I need to get rid of a body, and I don't need to explain why I need to get rid of a body, I am able to call my brother and ask him for his advice. The other night, the tables were turned. I was sitting in my living room, eating popcorn, watching HGTV, as I want to do. And my brother called, and he said, okay, you're in like a dinghy on a lake, and someone's tied an anchor to your ankle and they throw you off the boat how do you get out of it and i was like like no no like hey how are you boy it's been hot out nothing like that just like immediately that's the question and i was like oh uh well and then we started talking about it so that's that's weird and fun the better part though in being in a family of writers is that none of this ever seemed impossible and I think a lot of people, when they tell you that they'd wanted to be a writer and their parents are like, you should be an accountant. You should, you should get into macrame, you know, whatever it might be that is a more stable life. It's impossible. You can't do it. It was never impossible. It, was, it never seemed impossible. It always seemed like a thing that, that I could do. And the strange thing for the four of us kids, none of us who are kids anymore, Lee is nine years older than me, and my sister Karen is seven years older than me, and my sister Linda is two years older than me. And between the four of us, we've got, I don't know, a hundred books, something like that. That's a lot. My sisters write art books and inspiration books together, and my sister Karen had always been a journalist in addition to being a, a lawyer. To never need to explain to them why I'm feeling badly about something as it relates to my art and have them just understand it immediately, God, it's it's so welcoming. There's never any question of like, you should feel privileged that, that this thing's happening to you. Like they understand the intricacies of, of, the, of the micro failures inside the larger successes. And that's great. You know, it's funny, I get asked for advice all the time because I'm a professor. So students will say to me, Todd, I need help with this or Todd, I need help with that. And invariably, I can't solve their problems as much as I can explain to them my own 
peculiar logic for things. <laughs> and so I don't necessarily have overarching advice for someone who wants to write apart from, you know, be thick skinned and, you know, be aware that uh, this is a, a, a marathon and not a race and all that stuff. You know, people should talk about money. In fact, there's a great podcast called Sex, Death, and Money, where professionals actually talk about money, like how much they make, how much they didn't make, what they spend their money on, all that stuff. I think it's an important conversation to have, particularly for writers. There's this notion like, oh, you're going to sell your book. And so so say, for instance, you sell your book for $100,000. The common person thinks, oh, my God, they, they just sold their book for $100,000. Well, you didn't really sell it for $100,000. Your agent took 15% of that. So now you sold it for $85,000. But you didn't really sell it for $85,000 because the government just took 30% of that. So now you, you sold your book for $60,000, but you didn't really sell it for $60,000 because you're only going to get $35,000 of it within the first two years of you writing it. And then you're going to get the rest with the, when the paperback and the audio come out as well. So you've made $60,000 that's going to last you three years. <laughs> like Writers need to know about this stuff. In the MFA program that I direct, we talk about money all the time. We talk about the business side of it all the time because it's an important thing to teach writers. And it's an important skill for the writers to know. There's all sorts of folks that will try to scam you by saying, oh, I'm going to give you exposure. Well, until such time that exposure can pay for a salad at Whole Foods, exposure is worthless. And so I'm always encouraging the writers in my program, like, hey, earn a living. Don't be shy about asking for money. And when people offer you money, take it and also be willing to negotiate. Money is so important for artists, and we're so shy about it because we undervalue the things that we do because we have that that notion that we're frauds. You know, like our our inability to recognize our own worth then causes us to not get paid what we're worth. And so I really want writers and artists in general to talk more about money and also talk about like the other things you can do for money while you're making your art. So many writers, of course, are professors and teachers and things of that nature oftentimes someone will say oh but you know doesn't that detract from your work or aren't you too tired to write after teaching and all these things and of course sometimes the answer to that is yes but also I eat and I have a house and I have a 401k and I have a retirement I have other parts of my life that are fulfilled by the fact that I get to teach and I get to administrate and I get to do all these other things. If you can find a job that you can do in collaboration with the art that you make and it fulfills you, you'll be a very, very happy person. And you'll be able to, like, you know, go on a cruise. <laughs> Not now, <laughs> but at some point. You know, if you want to write, make sure that you are intimate with empathy. Make sure that you know what it is to imagine a life outside of your own. And have a desire to explore that in a way that gives other people insight into that as well. Because it doesn't matter if you're writing literary fiction or crime fiction or romance fiction or YA fiction or memoir or, you know, the history of cheese graters. At the end of all of those things that you're going to write, it's the ability to tie yourself to another human being and another human being's pursuit towards something that they want that's going to make the work either succeed or fail. That, I think, is the key to being a successful and good writer is that relationship and that knowledge of empathy. And now, a reading from The Low Desert. It was before dawn, the Saturday after the 4th of July, 
when I found Jim Connolly standing shirtless on the other side of my bedroom door. He'd walked in through the front door. I didn't bother with locks. You came in my house. You were either invited or you weren't. I'm sorry, Morris, he said. I've been outside knocking for ten minutes. Can you put that pistol down? I looked behind me. My wife, Catherine, had the sheets pulled up under her chin. I closed the door and walked Jim into the family room, set my gun down on top of the TV console. What the hell's going on? Gloria and I were walking the beach, he said, getting ready for the boat races this morning, and found something. Connolly was the marketing manager at Claxton Oil, the company that employed us both. He and his wife Gloria lived across the street in the Claxon Oil Executive Housing Unit, 25 prefabricated houses and a few bungalows for visiting Claxon bigwigs, all cut into desert floor surrounding the banks of the Salton Sea and in direct view of the oil derricks. I'd spent the last several months working as the project's head of security, which basically meant I was the law, the closest real cop 60 miles away in Palm Springs, which in 1962 meant we were in another world entirely. The Claxon 500, the speedboat race sponsored by the oil company, was set to start at 10 that morning, launching from the northwest side of the sea. 200 campers were already out at the recreation area just adjacent to the launch, and we expected another 500 spectators to fill in by the end of the day. The race teams had been housed in trailers next to the marina the entire week, getting their swift boats ready. What kind of something? I asked. A boy, Jim said, I think. I couldn't tell Morris with all the... He flapped his arms about, sputtering. The body's pretty eaten up. Okay, I said. I'd fought in Korea, so death was something I knew how to work around. Tragedy was not as simple. Jim picked at something on his bare chest. Where's your shirt? Covering the body. I went back into the bedroom, got dressed, told Catherine the news. Have you heard about any runaways, she asked, from the workers? Negative. The workers, a mixture of roughnecks brought in from Oklahoma and Texas, Mexicans up from the border, and a smattering of Indians from the various tribes between Palm Springs and Blythe, lived in makeshift barracks near the oil derricks along the North Shore, where we also kept office space, in addition to the digs encircling the 350 square miles of the sea. If I showed up at any of the locations, it wasn't good news. I'd spoken with the county sheriff, Luther Ward, the day before about a fight between a migrant worker and one of our roughnecks, a guy named Dixie Cooper, a first-rate scumbag, over at a bar in Bombay Beach. The worker ended up choking on his own teeth, was back in Mexicali, could go either way. I sent Dixie back on the train, told him to find a place where no one knew him and stay there. Or tried to, anyway. I ended up breaking both of his wrists in the middle of the conversation. Which is to say, if one of the workers' children was missing, I might not ever find out. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.